0: I'm Neil Barton. You're listening to the Background Report. For this episode, I interviewed Ken Kratz. For 18 years, he was the district attorney in Calumet County, Wisconsin. In 2007, he prosecuted Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey for the brutal rape and murder of Teresa Hallback. Ken is the author of Avery, the case against Stephen Avery and what making a murderer gets wrong. Hello, Hi, Ken. How you doing? It's Neil Barton.
1: Hello, Neil. Very well. Thank you.
0: December 2015, just like millions of other Americans, my wife and I binge watched Making a Murderer on netflix i feel like we were kind of alone in our reactions because right after it was over we looked at each other and our first thoughts were about you not Stephen avery we said oh my god we just saw a guy get personally attacked and raked over the coals for doing his job and doing it well
1: yeah well i I appreciate the uh, the sentiment you weren't alone in that thought <laughs> I guess I was with you on, on that one Neil but that having been said since it premiered in 2015 there's been a steady uh, stream of people who have really had their eyes open to what making a murderer was who Stephen Avery really is and I guess are, are thirsty for more of the facts of the case more of Stephen's background and we hope uh, next year there will be a release of a series being produced right now by Transition Studios in uh, Cleveland and in uh, I think September of 2019 it's slated to be released and that should provide a a really well done response to making a murderer so uh, everybody should be looking forward to that.
0: Oh that's great I'm looking forward to seeing that. Are you involved in it at all? Are you helping produce it or are you consulted on it?
1: Well I'm being uh, interviewed as are many of the people who were vilified in Making a Murderer, including uh, Tom Fossbender and some of the cops that were involved, and and really an opportunity for friends of Teresa Hawlock to be heard from. So it's very much the other side of the story, what you didn't get to hear, and and much closer to what the jury got to hear and consider back in 2007.
0: I've been thinking about you the last couple years, just kind of wondering how you're doing. Has whatever negative effect this documentary had on your life a couple of years ago, making a murderer. Has it died down since then?
1: Well, uh, yes and no. I mean, the uh, back in 2016, the first couple of months of 2016. Uh, I don't know if if you're aware, but the fans of of making a murderer, and, and again, almost as I understand, you know, 40 million people watched this, and almost the same amount of people were. Uh, were really spoon-fed and led to believe that a a travesty happened, that a a miscarriage of justice happened, and people believed that I should have some ongoing consequences because of my role as lead prosecutor in that case. And so in March of 2016, uh, I lost my law firm, my private law firm. There was a concentrated effort to call my office and to harass me and and harass my clients, and and we weren't able to uh, withstand that after about uh, after about March uh, one of the things that people don't understand is that since this documentary came out or docu series came out in December of 2015 from that day until my Personal law firm closed at the end of March in uh, 2016. I did not get one additional private client. Wow! And so think of the impact of that—not just for me and and my law firm, but really everybody that was involved has a similar story. Jim Link and and Andy Colburn, two of the officers who were targeted, really brutally targeted, as oh, yeah. having been responsible for framing this guy. You know, now interestingly, that tack has been abandoned now that there isn't any evidence to support that. In fact, both of those gentlemen have been, at least with the um, legitimate media, have been cleared of any uh, of any shenanigans or wrongdoing. But here's the question, Neil. Now what? I mean, now that I've lost my law firm, now that those guys have lost their reputation, now that everybody, including uh, uh, Hollywood types, um, have spoken up and have indicated uh, publicly or on the record that they believe that not only have we committed in, in some instances, but uh, set up a man uh, for murder. After that's all been debunked, where's the apology? How do I get my law firm back? How, yeah. do, I, uh, how do I? How do I get my reputation back? How do these cops? get their lives back. They were hounded and vilified at least to the point that I was. But there isn't any or very few uh, legitimate uh, media sources that stand up and say, wait a second, this is wrong. I mean, you can't just make up facts. You can't splice some testimony together and, and have a narrative come out just what you want it to say and really fooling that many millions of people and not have some kind of accountability for it. In fact, these filmmakers got four Emmy. For yeah, their, they got rewarded for,
0: for it. <laughs>
1: for for their work on it, including, you know, this is what's funny. Including an Emmy for editing, for creative editing. Well, when you stitch together, in some instances, testimony that didn't even happen in the same day and purported to all be one fluid courtroom scene, that's intentional misrepresentation. And somebody, I'm hoping, someday, will stand up and say, you know, this kind of documentary filmmaking, if that's what you're going to call it, should have a disclaimer or should have some kind of accountability, if nothing, Else from their own industry that says documentaries are different than fictional pieces of work. People still believe that what they're watching on a documentary is at least mostly true. But this one, uh, as as has been well documented now, has shown to be a, a piece of fiction, has shown to be an advocacy piece made by and for the Avery defense team and is a travesty. Yet, still today, Neil, almost nobody will say that out loud. And I think it really has caused a smear uh, or a black mark on the documentary filmmaking
0: industry itself. I agree with you. I would go so far as to call it a ho, Maybe a very engaging and entertaining one, but it's certainly not a documentary. Oh, very. Hey,
1: it's very well done. And, you know, I, I, I laugh because I, I've always said if these filmmakers would have taken the time to show the other side, to show what really happened, it's still every bit as compelling, Neil. It's every bit as interesting. It's every bit as entertaining. You've got all the forensics. You've got a guy who is uh, exonerated and then the first man in the nation to have committed a murder after having been exonerated oh, yeah. uh, for another, uh, another crime. You know, you've got everything, yet they chose this case, they chose this opportunity to really take it that step further and say, you know, we're going to just make up a bunch of stuff, and we're going to see how many people we can uh, kind of hoodwink and, uh, and make believe uh, a bunch of this nonsense. And like I said at the beginning of your show here today, hopefully in, in the fall of 2019, all that will be put to rest.
0: I hope so, too. The other option, of course, is people,
1: people could just read my book. And then they could see, then they could see what it is that these filmmakers did. And in my book, I think, as you know, I've got examples, side by side examples of what the real testimony was from the transcripts, and then what "Making a Murderer" purported to show. And and it's so clear that uh, not only was this false, but it was intentionally false, intentionally deceiving millions and millions of people in order to advance their narrative. And whether it's a push for criminal justice reform or whether it's uh, simply a push to get this psychopathic murderer out of jail for some reason. Either way, it's uh, wrong and Net- Netflix should be ashamed of themselves. They should have now that they know it's a piece of fiction, they should at least have a disclaimer take it out of their documentary
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: category or, or something, right? I mean now that they know, now that we've shown that it's uh, absolutely false, you would think that a provider as large as Netflix Netflix would take, even though it was the most watched streaming piece of entertainment of all time, even though it was that they still, I think, had a responsibility to show or tell their viewers that what you're about to see never really happened. And I think that would be something that, that they could go a long way towards towards curing the defamation that's occurred and, and curing the, the wrong that has been lodged against these police and these prosecutors and these people who have dedicated their careers, or at least did up to that point, for the search for justice and search for the truth. And it's so funny in a tragic way how that is just poo-pooed and just put to the side that uh, that reality that these were really good honest people that were destroyed by this and and i'm obviously still bitter about
0: it these guys i mean link colborn i mean and especially tom fassbender and mark weiger you could just tell they're seasoned pros and the way they handled the brendan dassey confession and everything they did
1: well you know the the, the brendan dassey confession i think is a standalone issue and I'll, I'll be happy to talk about that in in just a minute but mm-hmm. When they, meaning the documentary filmmakers, when they suggest that there were a bunch of keystone cops around here or that there was uh, no physical evidence or that it was a bunch of people that didn't know what they were doing, it's exactly the opposite of that. This was the largest criminal investigation in Wisconsin history. It was the largest homicide case ever presented, ever watched in uh, Wisconsin history, and we've had cases of Jeffrey Dahmer and, and others. Yet, yeah. uh, you know the the DNA and the and the work that went in this, and the FBI having dedicated their lab to disproving that these blood smears and these blood samples that were taken were not planted there. They were not, you know, from some vial of blood in some clerk's office or something, which was the allegation from from the movie, and and, and the fact that. So much care was taken in this. The fact that it took 18 months to prepare this and the um, the Dassey case, it took seven weeks to try this case. And, and it had, you know, over 500 items of evidence, uh, of physical evidence that were presented at the trial, over 50 witnesses, yet the docudrama would have suggested that this was a very uh, slipshod operation, and and that and that's not true at all.
0: Now, this was a lot of work that went into this case. It was basically... Except for taking care of your kid, it was basically your life, morning, night, and day for months. Right? I mean, yeah,
1: 18, yeah, no, eighteen months. Eighteen months of uh, of prep. I worked on the case every day for eighteen months. And what many people don't know is, it wasn't my case. It wasn't in my county. It was in the Manitowoc County, which was a an adjacent county, and so together with preparing and trying that mammoth case our county 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 still had all of our investigations and prosecutions to handle at the same time and so you know i did this as a favor for Manigaw County. I wasn't wasn't responsible to do it. They asked me if I would accept the special prosecution of the case. They asked my sheriff's department, the Calumet County Sheriff's Department, if they would accept the position of lead investigative agency because of the uh, potential for a conflict. And we did. And we did a really, a really fine job, I, I think, balancing or juggling all of those things. Somebody had to try this case. Somebody had to take it on. It couldn't be Manigaw County. And so the fact that I had a lot of experience. I was a very experienced uh, prosecutor at the time. I seemed, and the victim was from our county. I seemed to kind of be the natural person to have asked. And I, I see why they asked, and I, and I don't regret having accepted it. My life would certainly be different now if uh, we would have just declined the uh, the handling of, of the case. But that all having been said, you know, Teresa Halbach deserved to have this man who lured her onto his property, who raped. Killed, dismembered her together with uh, with his nephew. She deserved to have her case brought to trial, to be brought to justice of uh, those that that were responsible. And so, I think uh, myself and the people that worked on the case can even still today have a, a good deal of pride in the legitimacy of the verdict and the fact that justice was
0: done well you took a very dangerous man off the streets and nobody ever can take that away from you no matter what personal problems you had years later and we all have them you know by the way Mm -hmm. you know no matter what happened afterwards you know you took a really dangerous killer off the streets and i guess you can always be proud of that you know you mentioned your career you mentioned why they came to you because of your experience can you tell me a little bit about your law career like have you always been on the prosecution side, working for law enforcement. How did you come up?
1: I was a prosecutor for over 25 years. I began in, in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and then I moved over to Calumet County in 1992, and I was the elected DA from 1992 until 2010. So for those 18 years, I was uh, re-elected as, uh, continuously as the, as the DA. So really being on the prosecution side, advocating for crime victims, that was my career. I was the chairman of the Crime Victims Rights Board uh, in Wisconsin for 12 years, making sure that crime victims... Throughout the state, had an opportunity to be heard and, and had all their rights provided to them by prosecutors and cops and, and judges and really everybody in the system. And so, my work uh, advocating for crime victims was so important and, and such an important part of my life. I think one of the one of the unrecognized casualties of making a murder is all of those. Years, all that work I did with crime victims and and others has really been really been lost. We've really been thrown away. My reputation has been you know so drastically eroded. Not only since uh, since Make Me Murderer, but since my texting incident back in two thousand nine and and the resulting officer lawyer regulation a case that uh, was brought uh, after. That and the and the treatment of uh, of me being suspended and things, uh, despite it, it only uh, quote unquote only being an electronic communication with with a crime victim, it was still deplorable behavior, and I've I've accepted the responsibility for that behavior since day one. But I never thought, Neil, it was going to be a life sentence. I never thought I never thought that uh, having texted uh, somebody inappropriately would preclude me from ever being a lawyer again, really. And as it's turned out now that that was used, I don't want to say politically, but was really used by the documentary filmmakers as the cornerstone of look at this creepy guy and he should never be believed. Well, that really took hold and really from that point forward ensured that I would never practice law again. And I'm, I'm so saddened by uh, not only that, because obviously I, I thought I was an okay trial lawyer and, uh, huh. and it was something that, that I did uh, I did pretty well. But now uh, the reality is I can't ever do that again. I can't ever be in the courtroom uh, again because of all the uh, misinformation that has been put out there, all the reputational damage that I've taken. Um, there's a, a, a school of thought, or at least there's a, a common... Thought that I'm you know some kind of a, a rapist or a pedophile or any of these kind of things and of course I never I never uh, even had had any face to face communication with this with this young woman you look at the Me Too stuff that's going on right now and I I kind of laugh and think I was targeted or at least highlighted for my behavior well before any of the Me Too stuff and so sending a text message now compared to all these other uh, individuals who've been raping and and molesting and, oh, and yeah. abusing people for all these years, and 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 now, you know, you would think that uh, all those people kind of get a, a quote unquote second chance, and I'm the one that that's forever lost the opportunity to practice. So it's what it is, you know. I, I I'm. I'm trying my very best not to place myself in a position of a victim. I made I made my bed. I made all those decisions, and the world decides our consequences. You know, we don't uh, we don't get to do that, but it's unfortunate. I will sit here today and tell you I very much miss the practice of law. So I, I'm hoping maybe someday I'll be able to contribute uh, something somewhere that profession which i spent so many years doing
0: i thought that your bar suspension was only temporary it was it was a four month oh no 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 it was a four month it was a four month
1: suspension and i was automatically reinstated and all those kind of things the practical effect of it however Mm. olr when they decided to reopen my case you know my case was originally dismissed by the office of lawyer regulation i self-reported this texting event I said uh, within a month, I self reported to OLR saying, please take a look at this, determine if I have violated any of the OLR uh, ethical rules. And if I have, then I would subject myself to whatever punishment they came up with. Well, they investigated the whole thing and they said, you have not violated any ethical rules. As it turns out, the ethics rules are having sex with a client. That's nothing close to sending a text message to a crime victim on a case. Yet uh, that same OLR six months later, when the fact that they had dismissed it was leaked to the Associated Press, they reopened my case first case in the history of OLR to have been reopened after it was dismissed and then they decided that it required a license suspension when they had already investigated and, and dismissed it so that's wow. the other that's the other part of this case is that OLR then decided to include not any specific ethics violations but they Lodge complaints of things called uh, an offensive personality they they decided that since uh since there wasn't anything that they could point to by way of the ethics rules that uh, they would say I had a offensive personality, and that was the hook that they used to have my license suspended, and that's something that I will wager everything I have to say no other lawyer uh, has ever been subjected to that kind of targeting by OLR. Well, they were being threatened themselves. They were being uh, the legislature of Wisconsin. I know we're going way deep into this, but the legislature in Wisconsin had threatened to audit their funding if they didn't reopen the case and sanction me and suspend me. Well, (laughs) What do you think they're going to do? So after that threat was made by the legislative branch, they reopened the case and true to form, they suspended me for that. So it's, it's when you look into some of the things about Ken Kratz has had some rules, uh, let's say, applied to him that have never been applied in Wisconsin, 2,200 cases, 2,200 cases of lawyers are dismissed every year from OLR complaints that are made against them, 2,200. Yeah. And every, every one of those 2,200 people, Neil, every one of those lawyers, every year, gets to rely on the fact that their case was investigated and dismissed. 2,200 people every year, lawyers, get to rely on, okay, it's been dismissed, I get to move on now, because it's been unfounded. One person in the history of the Wisconsin OLR has had their case reopened, after it's been dismissed and has had their license suspended and that was me and when i asked olr and when my lawyer at the time asked olr why are you doing this why are you reopening this one case are you going to have these other 2200 lawyers every year afraid that their case is going to be reopened too when they asked why they did it, they said because we can. Yeah. And anytime you get a a, a, a quasi governmental or a, a regulatory agency doing something because they can, the results uh, are are hard to swallow. And something that people have really moved on from—they don't want to uh, to view that uh, that situation as something that could ever happen again. And of course, you know, I'm the one that i the one that once again gets to be the poster child for it. Uh, for OLR and, and and for that behavior and, and like I said, consequences aren't something that that I get to choose. Uh, I, I bore the the four months of suspension uh, that had had me losing one of my earlier law firms when they suspended me. Mm-hmm. You know, I lost the law firm, and then I then I reopened it again, and I built it up again, and. And then, uh, you know, making an order comes out and then I lose that law firm. And so it's, it's been a, a, a tough road for me. It hasn't felt at least like it's been a, a level playing field. You know, I felt yeah. that OLR uh, moved the goalposts on me that uh, and I was listening to Judge Kavanaugh, by the way, uh, on some of these hearings this week. And, and he said how important it is for the process of any case to be consistently applied. And so you have to know what the rules are before you start any kind of a game. If you change them in the middle of the game, you're going to lose any credibility. You're going to lose any opportunity for due process or or right to, uh, to defend something like that. Well, that was a position I was in now. They, during the course of the investigation, they said, well, I know that we've never opened a case up again after it's been dismissed, but we're going to anyway. We're we're going to use that uh, uh, because we can answer uh, for for Ken Kratz's case and Ken Kratz's case only. And and that's just something that I'm hoping, as the years kind of trickle by, that uh, maybe some scholars will take a look at and say, how the hell did this ever happen? Why wasn't the state bar of Wisconsin? Screaming and yelling that you can't reopen a case that that's been dismissed. That all these other lawyers are going to lose confidence and, in the in the regulatory branch and, and things. But 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 they sadly never did. They were invited to, uh, and they said too hot. We're just not touching it. You just you're on your own, and the rest is uh, is kind of well known. So there's my soapbox. There's my uh, <laughs> there's my my hope anyway that uh, that my case will. Uh, will forever change the way that uh, lawyers have to defend against claims about their personality or some other such nonsense in, in order to have them get to their end goal. And that is to punish somebody because the legislature or, or some outside pressures made it so. and uh, And that's what happened.
0: Well, I should point out in your book, Avery, The Case Against Stephen Avery and What Making a Murderer Gets Wrong. You know, when you talk about what happened with you and the Bar Association, you didn't run from it at all. And you're actually a little humorous at yeah. points and pretty self-deprecating, you know. <laughs> so Well,
1: I was an idiot. Hey, I was an idiot. Neil. I'm going to tell you right now. There's nobody that screwed up into their life as well as I did. I mean, I did one thing really, really well, and and that was that I don't use it ever as a, as an excuse. But the combination of Xanax and Vicodin, it's even more prevalent. But back then, the opioids and the and the and the Xanax and the and the Ambien, all that together, kind of you lose all your um, inhibitions and you make really bad really bad decisions. And, and when that happens and you look back at it, you say, what was, what was I thinking? And really I'm when all said and done, I'm really thrilled with uh, the intervention that happened to me. Uh, You know, I was on a path of, of self-destruction. I I certainly would have gotten myself into, uh, you know, much more uh, of a problem because of the decisions that I was finding myself making so from that perspective it needed to happen but i'm hopeful that other lawyers that look at me or look at my case will say to themselves you know there's agencies out there like lawyer help services and other support groups that you don't have to lose everything before you you seek help for some kind of compulsive behavior or some kind of addictive chemical or other behaviors that that you're engaging in you can get help and you should and you should get help you don't have to lose everything and and I hope other lawyers won't shield the stigma and and things to to want to get help here's my uh, my last concern that i hope raise uh about this because I self-reported okay because mm-hmm. because you'd think that OLR would want to encourage lawyers and not have to wait for a complaint from somebody, but they self reported saying, I think I screwed up and I'm willing to fix this and get help. You'd think those kind of people would, those kind of lawyers, Uh, OLR would want to work with and would want to, you know, with no other complaints ever in my history. I think those would be the kind of lawyers that they'd want to kind of reward for self-reporting, yet they asked for a six-month suspension, something they've never asked for in another, uh, another case. You know, while the case was pending, Neil, OLR had another very, very similar case brought to its attention. There was a lawyer who not only had been sending electronic communication to his client he was having sexual intercourse with a developmentally disabled client vulnerable having sex with her and they gave that person a reprimand
0: oh wow not
1: any suspense not any suspension not any it was under the radar it wasn't front page news, uh, what they decided that deserved was kind of a written reprimand. Don't do this again. Well, look at the difference. Look at the difference in my behavior compared to things like that. And really, the only, uh, the only thing you can point to is how public this was made and what an example uh, they wanted to make. Again, that's a decision that they get to make. It's a consequence that I have to bear. But I'll hope, at least in the future, that when consequences are applied to lawyers, they are evenly and fairly applied despite what might be rumblings or clamoring from the masses kind of a, uh, a mob mentality when they when nothing short of of throwing this guy to the law business is, is going to
0: be good enough. Well, it seems to me like you suffered uh, as severe consequences as you, as you did because you were on the government side and there were politicians involved, you know, and so they're worried about public image and and then they start threatening funding. So I guess it's a little, <laughs> sure, you sure. know, there's more at play there, even though your behavior is a lot, might have been a lot more innocent than other guys who got slapped on oh, the fist. Yeah, there, there's
1: nothing innocent about my behavior. That's well, not, uh, that's. Kid herself, but <laughs> but I I, I get I, I get your point I don't you see how cautious I am you know I never yeah. I never allow anybody to say that there was anything anything okay about my behavior I've taken like I said from day one responsibility and said what the hell was i thinking i've got to make this right
0: yeah no no i agree yeah so i was wondering if so i could let's t- move on to talk about the case topic. a little bit how's that yeah. all right sure yeah, <laughs> okay as kelly McCounty county prosecutor district attorney manage came to you They asked you to get involved because they said we want to avoid any appearance of a conflict of interest because of Avery's lawsuit against Manitowoc County, right?
1: That's exactly right. Mm -hmm.
0: Now, did you get involved in the case initially when it was just a missing person deal?
1: Sure, I did. And I, I had mentioned before, that's one of the reasons why it was kind of natural for me to accept the criminal prosecution as well. Teresa Halbach was from our county, was from Calumet County. And so a couple of days before her SUV was found on the Avery property, I was already working with Mark Wigert and other investigators on the missing persons case doing cell tracking and financial credit card tracking, trying to find where this woman had gone to. And so our investigation was in full swing as a missing persons investigation. It wasn't until her SUV was found on that Saturday, I guess it was the fifth of November, that this case moved from a missing persons to a obvious criminal case and turned out to be homicide.
0: This is 2005, so cell tracking was still in its infancy, right?
1: It very much was. They were back in the old days of triangulating cell towers and pinging off of different towers, and now of course it's all automated and they can do it in less than a second, but back then, you literally had to have cell providers and the Department of Justice assisted us and they were taking maps and they were triangulating, and they were able to determine that three Teresa Halbach's phone never left Avery's property, that once she got to Avery's, her cell phone stayed there. You know, the docudrama never told its viewers that Teresa's phone and her camera and her PDA were found burned in Avery's own Personal burn barrel located about twenty feet from his door. Yeah. Well, why not? Do you think, Neil? Why do you think they? Why do you think they kept that from their viewers? Why do you think that the fact that Teresa Hallbach's phone was burned in Stephen's burn barrel was never brought to the attention? Because it doesn't fit their narrative. It doesn't fit the fact that. He's being set up for this. Well there's no explanation is there for her phone and camera and personal property to be burned in his in his burn barrel unless she was there and unless she was taken into some degree of non consensual custody there and later killed there. And so her SUV never leaves the property, her phone and PDA never leaves the property, her bones are found intertwined with steel belts in Stephen's burn area. Well, you don't hear that from Making a Murderer, right? Her DNA is on a bullet that's found in the garage. That bullet is ballistically matches the rifle that's hanging over Avery's bed. Now, here's a question for those of your viewers that watched Making a Murderer. Let me ask you this. That rifle by Stephen Avery is seized and is in police custody, not in Manitowoc. But it's in police custody either in Calumet County or in Madison, the Department of Justice, from the day they seized the property. All right. Mm-hmm. So the 5th of November, let's say, his rifle is already in custody. Well, that means that the bullet that they found that matches, basically matches that rifle, had to be shot before the 5th of November. Well, if that bullet is shot from that gun before the fifth, and how can you say that some law enforcement officer planted that bullet? How do you get a bullet to plant? You go, you go, take the rifle out of custody and go shoot it, and then somehow find Teresa's DNA and dip it in that, and then go put it in the garage or something. Well, it all becomes really nonsense once you listen to what would have to have happened to believe. Uh, the defense theory in this case, but making a murderer never tells their audience that the bullet that's found in the garage was shot from his rifle. And and ask yourself, why? Why not? Why don't they tell you that Stephen's non-blood DNA, uh, skin cells, are found underneath the hood latch of her car? Why is that never mentioned in Making a Murder? Well, the filmmakers made some BS uh, answer about uh, well, it was for uh, uh, time constraints.
0: You know, they couldn't uh, <laughs> yeah, time they, constraints. They
1: couldn't take yeah, they couldn't take the five seconds that it took for them to say that the phone and camera and PDA and. His his uh, DNA is found on the hooligans. They couldn't tell you all of that, but you get a lot of time of you know pot eating lettuce and things and making murder and it's certainly a time for uh, for all that <laughs> stuff. So I guess uh, I guess I guess you and I may have a different opinion of what might have been relevant for them to include in in their ten hour docudrama when they're trying to convince everybody they didn't have time to tell us that uh, that her phone was found in his burn barrel.
0: Well, it's not the story they wanted to tell. However, like you and I talked about earlier, it still would have been just as compelling and interesting if they did oh, include that stuff.
1: Exactly. It's a great story with both sides being told. I think they really missed an opportunity uh, to do that. and And they have some legitimate... Concerns and points, and Mr. Strang and Buting had uh, legitimate uh, points about some uh, reforms that they were that they were hoping to make. But you know, uh, Jerry Buting especially was willing to advance what he has to know to be untruths. When he said, "Gee, I wonder how that that hole got in the vial that we found." Remember when when he said <laughs> oh, yeah, it's a red letter day? He says for the defense. Well. By the time it got to trial, not even making a murder, but by the time of trial, Buting already knew that that hole was put there by a nurse named Marlene Kranitz. She said, I'm the one that put the hole there. And he knew that. And they abandoned by the time of trial, they abandoned this notion that that hole was significant at all. Yet. When we get to making a murderer, they tried to make it the smoking gun and tried to make it the it sound, you know, and it's just, it's wrong. It's, it's a lie. It's intentionally misleading. When you look at some of the things that Mr. Buting, especially of that defense team has been willing to present as factual or legitimate uh, since the time as he spends his speaking tours across Europe and across Australia and and everywhere else, you know, <laughs> I'm wondering if there's ever been a lawyer team that has profited so much by losing so badly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, in a case. exactly. I, I said, and I and I don't mean unnecessarily to uh, to take a shot at at these heroes, which are, uh, you know, legal heroes now. But you know, when you look at at Strang and bidding, and if you put them uh, next to a house plant, and you say all right, one of these was given $240,000, but both of these would have gotten Avery life imprisonment without the possibility <laughs> of parole. You know, you could have saved uh, 239900 something dollars if you would have bought the house plant and had him represent you instead. And so it, it, it's not that they did such a great job or that, or even now that the uh, appellate case it was set up so wonderfully for Uh, for the appellate case, it's humorous, at least to me, that they've been lauded and given so much credit by the legal community, not just citizenry, but by the legal community for really having gotten their client the worst possible sentence that they could have given. And so so what do you do? How do you look at that and say, yeah, those are the guys uh, that we should be it should be the champions, that we should be saying what a great job they did. You know, Stephen Avery himself said that towards the end of the case, the judge offered Avery a mistrial. The judge offered, when there was a problem with a a juror uh, leaving, the judge offered Mr. Avery an opportunity for a mistrial, which the defense had said they wanted all along. But when given the opportunity for a mistrial, it was Stephen Avery in an affidavit that he filed with the Supreme Court who said that his lawyers told him um you know you're not going to be able to afford us if this case is retried so you better just go ahead and let him go to a verdict here you know they could have retried that case you got to start it all over which any defense attorney would usually accept but now ask yourself if it isn't following the money if it isn't the $240,000 then why did they take that case?
0: Uh, they still would have lost just as bad, even with a retrial. At,
1: I understand that, but they would have had all of our testimony, all of our experts, all of everything in transcripts, and they could have cross-examined it. Anytime you get to retry a case, mm. it's such a huge advantage for the defense. So one has to ask, well, why didn't you recommend to your client then that he accept that mistrial and that he retry the case. Well, they weren't going to retry it. You know, this defense team that uh, would have everybody believe that they were losing money on the case. Tell me again, how many lawyers get 240 grand for a defense? Uh, tell me how many lawyers get uh, get that case. This nonsense that, you know, the poor uh, always gets uh, jobs in these cases. Well, Stephen Avery for 240 grand got the best defense team money could buy. Uh, so don't come around with this nonsense about he's he's poor or, or or that they didn't have the the resources or or wherewithal to do that. So yeah, you know that's uh, these are questions. They aren't necessarily criticisms, but they're questions that other people should be asking, and they should be asking uh, Strang and Beauty and they should be asking others who surround this case whether or not, you know, they got the best uh, advice that they could. And Brendan Dassey, what kind of advice did he get? Well, he could have been out in about a year or two from now I offered him as little as 15 years of incarceration to uh, simply tell us the truth, tell us uh, what happened. His family was the one who told him to reject the plea offer. His family told him to go to trial. His family was the one that said, You know, it's going to hurt both of you guys if you take the plea deal. What does that tell you, Neil? That tells you that the important person in that advice is Stephen Avery, not Brendan Dassey. Brendan Dassey would be out by now and he'd have the full rest of his life to live as a free man. Yet, because his family did him such a disservice and told him to reject that plea offer and told him to go to trial, certainly he was going to be convicted of first-degree homicide. What kind of advice is that for a developmentally disabled 16-year-old? He was looking for his adult family members to be supportive, to look at his interests, to say, what's in your best interest, Brendan? And when his lawyers weren't able to do that, when his family was unwilling to do that, the outcome was pretty well set already, uh, and that is that he was going to be convicted. He confessed to uh, his involvement, uh, not only in the uh, the rape, but the homicide and the dismemberment. And, and when you have that kind of a detailed confession, somebody should have told Brendan that it's unlikely you're going to be successful at
0: trial. Take the deal. Yeah, take the deal. Take the deal. Obviously, I agree with the contention of your book that he was a sacrificial lamb to protect the interests of Stephen avery you know right. steven avery was the public figure he was getting a lot of traction in the media and he had a possible payday right. coming and i think unfortunately brendan's own family kind of his own grandfather <laughs> just kind of uh, yeah exactly well world, i got so. a lot of i
1: got a lot of sympathy for for brendan dassey i, I yeah uh, and i've said that uh, i've said that even before the trial you know, when we made that offer to him during his trial, in, within in about two weeks into his trial, we re-offered to let him enter a plea. And he'd get, I think, as as little as 20 years, which was uh, just a little more than we'd originally offered. But it wasn't life imprisonment and was something that we even felt bad for him without any testimony or assistance. We just thought, you know, you don't deserve life imprisonment for your role in this case, yet yet they pushed us to the point where we had no choice but to, to try and convict him. And of course, in Wisconsin, when, uh, when you're convicted of first-degree homicide, it's a mandatory life sentence, so he should have known what he was in store for.
0: Yeah, I think the whole situation with Brendan Dassey is sad. And that's not to say that his confession was not accurate. I, it was actually pretty highly detailed and it was damning. But as far as how his case was handled and the pressure he was under from his family not to cooperate with law enforcement, that seems right. and the, the consequences he's suffering now for that.
1: And making a murderer again, cherry picked, they, they picked. The one area of, of the videotape where after being frustrated and asking him so many times, Mark Wiegert finally said, uh, who shot her in the head? By the way, Neil, who shot her in the head is not a leading question. It doesn't provide the answer. He could have said nobody. He could have said John Smith. Right? He didn't, though. He said Stephen Avery was the one that, that shot her in the head. And then after making a murderer, says, well, that's all you have to hear. They don't play. Then, okay, Brendan, tell us what happened. When he gives this detailed narrative of how he uh, had intercourse with her because he wanted to feel what it was like, mm-hmm. uh, they don't. They don't tell you that, that later he has these phone conversations with his mom when he said that uh, he had done, in his words, some of it. Well, some of it's uh, was is the part of the crime, and so. Uh, those admissions that uh, that he made to his mom. And and the other thing is, for those that watched closely, Brendan Dassey told his mother when she said, you know, why didn't you come tell me at 5 o'clock when I got home that this girl was over there, that this was happening, and nothing would have happened to you if you had told me that. And Brendan, I think, had amazing insight because he told his mom, but I was over there before. Okay, so when he tells his mom I was there before, before he got home at five, between three forty five when he gets home and five o'clock when his mom gets home, he's over at Stephen's house. What are you doing over there? There's no version later that his lawyers from Northwestern or anybody else is going to tell you that this was a false confession. There's nobody that will offer an explanation. What does that mean? If Brendan's over there before his mom gets home. He's guilty okay then then there's no explanation for for Brendan being kind of cajoled into into doing this he's a He's a member of this horrific crime. He's right there next to his uncle. He's there twice before five o'clock and after five o'clock and because he's over there twice and and all these things happen, there isn't any defense at least recognized defense that would be legitimate yet. Uh, the Northwestern lawyers and everybody else wants to pretend that those conversations with his mom didn't happen. Are are, are those conversations coerced also are those conversations, you know uh, the words of law enforcement? Well, of course not. That his own words with his own mother in the, in a conversation that, that they knew is being recorded, but are so damning and are so, truthful and that ring true that you never got to hear and that the making a murderer has, and Brendan's lawyers, have tried to keep from you all this time. Well, the the federal the court of appeals knew about all those statements. They weren't swayed by any of those arguments. And of course, the Supreme Court didn't take the case, which is the the biggest sign that that they can give that uh, they believed that his confession was, was legitimate, was uh, was taken without coercion. Those were his words, and he implicated himself in these crimes.
0: Yeah, so this past December, the Seventh uh, Circuit of the U.S. Court of Appeals overturned a ruling that was in his favor from months earlier. And then in June, I believe, the U.S. Supreme Court declined to hear his case. And... Yeah,
1: that's not true. I'm I'm, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm sorry.
0: sorry, Neil. The, Maybe I'm wrong. I'm the, <laughs> uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, you, you are. There was a federal magistrate who decided that his confession should be thrown out. So one, one at the trial court level, that's what the, in the federal the court, uh, uh, the, the one magistrate wrote an opinion that said it should be thrown out. The court of appeals then got to hear the case and they heard it, what's called in banc, which is all seven of them got to hear uh, the case. And then as a, as a group, the seven of them uh, decided, "No, we're affirming the uh, the conviction," and so the uh, saying that the, the the court of appeals, the uh, the smaller uh, version of that, the, the two to one decision, is true that uh, at least with for a short period of time there. They had affirmed the uh, the lower court, and in, in effect, throughout the confession. But when the whole Seventh Circuit got to hear it, it was upheld, and and on a four to three vote, he was his conviction was uh, was affirmed. So, but then the, but then you're right, the Supreme Court then um, on certiorari decided not to hear the case.
0: Do you still have any contact with Tom Fassbender and Mark Wieger? Do you know if they feel vindicated at all by this court decision? Yeah.
1: I'm not going to speak, uh, I'm not going to speak for, uh, law enforcement or really, uh, for really either of those, okay. of those individuals. I, I think, uh, I think they have, at least Tom has publicly spoken now about, uh, about the case. I don't know that, um, that Mark has or, or that Mark will, but at least from my perspective, I don't think anybody's been vindicated until they set uh, the record straight from what the general public, from what the world believes happened because of of making a murder. I think it's got to wait until uh, that becomes uh, at least more widely uh, disseminated. You know, it isn't just it isn't just this case, you Neil. Know. It's the whole criminal justice system that they really kind of put on on trial. And they said things like, you know, the poor never never gets a fair shake, or that cops, the suggestion that cops are out there planting evidence, or that third parties are out there planting evidence, and and it becomes a, it becomes something that if you say it long enough and loud enough, uh, people start believing that. There's certainly a a feeling across the country right now that is not very positive with law enforcement, and this really fueled, and it came at exactly the time that there were uh, that there were so many problems around the country with uh, with law enforcement so i think that that fed into uh to making a murderer it was the kind of narrative that was going to be championed or at least accepted by by many on on that side of the aisle and they've used it or tried to use it including the dassey case as a, a stepping stone or a reason to suggest that criminal justice reform is uh is needed and that's really i think and when you scrape it all away that's the answer uh to this whole thing. The the Northwestern people want a, a rule change where a lawyer's gotta be present with the with a juvenile. And of course Brendan wasn't the case uh, to to bring that up. You know, they use they I think they used the wrong facts, they used the wrong case to uh, uh to suggest that uh, that change in policy and so it's not hard I think to to see where everybody's going with their arguments again once you scrape them all the way and see what it is that they're now advocating for and and the reform in this case was for criminal justice juvenile justice reform with statements by juveniles and and whether a lawyer should be present or
0: not. much has been made about whether ideas were put into Brennan's head by the officers interviewing him but I think what a lot of people miss is they actually did a couple of things to test his level of suggestibility. They would say things right. like, I know she had a s- tattoo on her stomach, and he would say, well, no, right. I, don't, I don't remember seeing that. Or they kept insisting right. that we know you, maybe you shot her in the head. You're not being honest. And he would come back every time and say, no, Stephen did.
1: There's those. And those are really well known because they're in that video, but... But when you look at collateral information, when you look at what things he says to his family, you know, which you have to believe are true because he's saying them on the phone and he's not being coerced and he's just being asked what happened. Well, he makes all kinds of inculpatory statements there. You know, the first time he was interviewed, the day after or the day of, the Teresa's SUV being found, Brendan's kind of up north in Crivitz, Wisconsin, at a cottage with Stephen and his grandparents. He was interviewed then for the first time. Brendan was interviewed, uh, and, of course, he's off the radar. We don't think he's involved of, of anything. And when the officer um, asked him questions about it, uh, Brendan asked the cop, well, do you think he did it? And the cop asked, did what? And Brendan's the first person to mention this word. She said, do you think he raped her? Huh. Well, well, think about that. Brendan Dassey's the first one. He used the term rape. He's the first one to present that as a theory to law enforcement. Do you think he did it? It's not, do you think he murdered? Her? Do you think he sold her car? Do you think he kidnapped her? Do you think he did anything? Do you think he raped her is what he says to law enforcement. And so it isn't until you look back on statements like that, it looks back on he's the first one to, to say things like that. He's the one that said it was Uncle Stephen. It was his idea to have me. Have intercourse with her, you know. It was his idea to watch me have intercourse with her, and afterwards to say, "That's how you do it." Kind of an attaboy. Uh, you know how 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 creepy and how how what a horrible uh, event that must have been for
0: oh for Teresa uh, for Brendan
1: to oh. have well for Teresa but also for Brendan to have gone through. Can you not just the cajoling but just the presence of his. Uncle, who clearly Brendan looked up to, and and and, yeah. and he was a, me- a mentor uh, of sorts. And how, how he's telling this sixteen-year-old young man, um, "This is how you rape her, and, and here's how we're going to kill her." Well, it's just that's just something that is such a product of that family. When you look at the dysfunction in uh, in that family, but really is a, a microcosm of Stephen Avery, the the psychopath, the one with absolutely no remorse. And no compunction at all to have uh, uh, raped and 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 killed and and mutilated this this poor girl. So I, again, that goes back to my sympathy or at least empathy for what sixteen-year-old Brendan had to go through. And then after the the case is over, of course, he's. He's sitting with his own thoughts and his own guilt and his own remorse, and and Brendan is found crying a lot by himself. He's losing weight. Uh, His -hmm. family's worried about him, and it's his family that asked law enforcement and counselors to talk to him because they were worried about him because obviously something happened, and obviously he knows a lot more than, than what he's been saying. So it was the family that alerted us to talk to Brendan. It wasn't because he was
0: a suspect at all. He has to live with the idea, too, that he was Teresa's last hope. When she's tied up to that bed and she's screaming and crying for help and saying, please go get somebody, please stop this, and it ended up going the other way. He's got to sit in his cell and live with that as well.
1: Most legal scholars, when they understand the reduced role or diminished role, at least comparative to Stephen that that Brendan was involved in, they do recognize he could have saved her. He could have been the hero. He could have saved her life. All he's got to do is tell his mom. There's yeah. this girl tied up over there. And uh, it's all he's got to do. But he made the choice not to do that and to go back there and engage in further felonious uh, behavior. So it's, it's sad,
0: certainly. When you were investigating this case, did you find any other sources of conflict or tension in Teresa's Hallback's life that could have been a threat to her safety or had similar results? I'm sure you looked into alternate suspects and ruled them out one by sure. one, right?
1: Yeah, it's a, it, it's. Also a little known (laughs) uh, fact in this case, the number of suspects that they did review, those that are closest, you know, the family and ex-boyfriends and all those people are, are investigated. But in a very real sense, Neil, you've got her bones, you've got her car, you've got her phone, you've got everything found about 20 feet from this guy's back door the pool of alternate suspects then uh, (laughs) really should be put in, put in perspective because the making a murder folks are saying, well, why aren't you investigating Ryan and all these other things? Well, how many alternate suspects are you going to look at when the main suspect that you have, everything in the case is pointing towards him and everything, even after, even after 12 years of specialized, Scientific testing or whatever this nonsense term that Kathleen Zellner uses for what she promised within 30 days was going to show us who the real killer was. Anyway, I digress. All of that stuff for years and years has still not suggested anybody other than Stephen Avery being involved in this case. And so it withstands the most scrutiny maybe that any homicide case has ever had to endure. It has withstood that for all of these years years not only because of the good investigation, but because the physical evidence was just so darn powerful. And it all pointed, you know, six, six different places. Stephen's own blood is found in the SUV. Not they're all the same way. You know, some of it was left by gravity, by droplets. Some of it is smeared. Some of it's contact. Some of it has kind of cast off. If somebody's going to plant that, are you going to plant blood in four or five different ways? Probably not. You know, that's a stretch. And as I understand, I I didn't, of course, talk to any of the jurors in the case, but as I understand from what some of the jurors have said, this whole planting nonsense was discarded early on in their deliberations. And they said there's just no way the cops were involved or to blame for any of this. It's Stephen
0: Avery. Well, two thoughts I have about the planting blood nonsense. First of all, there's so much of his blood inside that Toyota RAV4, there wasn't even enough into the vial to smear all over the car like that on the inside of it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but that's not the scientific test, of
0: course, that yeah.
1: <laughs> it's the EDTA. It's the EDTA that's not in those samples.
0: You know it's the preservative
1: that was in that vial. that that vial is chuck full of EDTA, yet there is no EDTA on any of the blood of Stephen Avery's in that vehicle, meaning it was deposited there through active bleeding. It was coming directly from his body. And so, because of that, and that's what the FBI told the jury, and that's the one piece of evidence that blows that defense just out of the water, and you shouldn't even be talking about the vial blood after that.
0: His defense attorneys really did not want that blood tested for EDTA, did they?
1: No, they had the opportunity to have it. They knew about it. They knew about the existence of it, five months before the state knew about it. They had found it, and whoever it was from their defense team that found this vial of blood in the clerk's office in the bottom of some old file of, of Stephen Avery's, by the way, still in its box, still sealed. Mm-hmm. They find this blood, and, and they don't want to test it because they know. Even now, Neil, how come Kathleen Zellner hasn't said, even now, you've had the opportunity to test it for EDTA, yet you've chosen not to? Gee, why is that? Kathleen because you know it's going to verify and has verified in future testing that it was because of, of active bleeding and you can't spin your untruths and your narrative. Once you look at all of the evidence and not just little pieces here or there that you want to cherry pick.
0: About halfway through the book, you ask the reader, if you still believe in the planting theory, how far do you want to go with this? Like besides carrying around his blood to spread around on Teresa's car, were they also carrying around a vial of his skin cells to sprinkle on the hood latch?
1: Right. Do you have a vial of sweat? But also the last question, you have to be prepared to say the cops killed her. You have, if you're going down this road, you have to be prepared to say that for some reason, the cops chose this innocent 25-year-old photographer, killed her, burned her, dismembered her, planted their bones for what? For what? Because Stephen Avery filed a lawsuit against their employer? because Stephen Avery had a lawsuit against the police department. Jim Link wasn't involved in the original Avery case. Andy Colburn wasn't involved in the original Avery case. So why do these guys have the incentive to throw their crew away to possibly face prosecution themselves to kill a young woman? Why would they do this for somebody like Stephen Avery? Somebody asked me, would you have ever risked your career. And I said, you know, for literally a scumbag like Stephen Avery, I'm not going to risk anything. In fact, they suggested I left my house that night and went and helped them plant evidence. Of course, it wasn't my case yet. It oh, wasn't my gosh. case until a, w- a, w- a week later, but that I would go and I'd go onto the scene and I would help plant the blood, you know, i tell my wife, I won't get up and make a sandwich now. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have... <laughs> I don't have that kind of desire to go do that. I'm going to sit and watch the brewers on the couch, and that's going to be it. I'm not going to head off to some other county on a case that's not mine and try to get them to plant some evidence from some innocent crime victim in order to set up this guy with the choice to file a lawsuit against some other county. So it's ridiculous. It has been given way too much credit by way too many people up to this point And I think it's about time that uh, people like you and others that are now taking a legitimate look at it say enough is enough. This guy's guilty. He's right where he belongs and he's going to die
0: in prison. Yeah, he's never getting out. Can you tell me a little bit about what kind of person Teresa was? Can you talk about the victim a little bit, about her life, what was going on at the time?
1: I didn't know Teresa, but as I've come Mm -hmm. to find out, she was delightful. Her laugh was infectious. You could always hear that laugh when you walked into a room. She was very kind. She volunteered. She uh, was a volunteer volleyball coach for her sister's volleyball team. She was starting her own photography business. So she was entrepreneurial, hardworking. She had a couple of different photographic jobs. The one for auto trader was just kind of side money as her practice was building with her studio and, and her other photography work, but really was... Uh, unfortunately, somebody that Stephen Avery targeted, that Stephen Avery had tried to come on to about three weeks prior to her death, a woman that was lured by Stephen Avery intentionally for this purpose to kill and and most likely rape her as well, and and uh, it's yeah. something that uh, you just don't want to to think about and hopefully uh, her friends and family can you know remember the kind of person uh, that she was uh, in life and not give too much time or weight to how her life came to an
0: end. By sheer dumb luck, I would say, a volunteer searcher found Teresa's RAV4 at the Avery Salvage Yard before he was able to crush it. I understand it was parked reasonably close to the car crusher, is that right?
1: Yeah, not only reasonably close, it was just adjacent to it, when you look at the 40-acre Avery Salvage property itself, where the car was parked was as far away from Stephen Avery's trailer as you could get. So if you go kind of kitty-corner from the far a northwest corner of the property which is where Avery's trailer is you know the car is parked in the southeast corner right near the car crusher we know that uh, Stephen Avery was going to crush the car he had crushed other cars earlier that week as late as Thursday he left for crivets on Saturday morning but on Thursday he was crushing cars he had crushed two cars at least but the theory is a kind of a car sandwich. So uh, he crushed the two and he was going to crush Teresa's and two others. And if that happens, Neil, if he is able to get back and do that, he probably gets away with murder. He'll never have an ability to kind of root around in his burn area and never find her bones there. So it's it's likely that within one day, because he was going to come back that very Saturday afternoon, the car was found at about 1030 in the morning on Saturday, that same day, Uh, He was going to uh, clean things up with the crushing. Uh, He had to wait until Saturday, by the way, because the salvage yard was open (laughs) the whole week before that. And he didn't have an ability to be alone with it. Well, everybody's up north now. He's planning to come back that afternoon and and crush the car. And so it was very much luck that her car uh, was found by volunteer uh, searchers at about 1030 that
0: morning. And you can't really crush a car quietly and discreetly, can you? I understand it's quite a loud no, process. No, no,
1: no. Well, there's a lot to it. You have to take the, the gas tank out, the engine, the tires. You know, there's all kinds of prep work that has to be done to a car as well, so it's not just a, a five-minute operation.
0: Well, it seems like he made a couple of big gambles when he committed this crime and he ended up losing on those gambles. One is that he uh, thought that the car wouldn't get noticed until he was able to crush it on that Saturday afternoon. And the other, he thought that his nephew would keep his mouth shut and never say anything. He did
1: what he could to ensure Brendan would be quiet forever. I think back to when he and Brendan... Had both raped Teresa. At least that's Brendan's story. And Stephen Avery hands Brendan a knife and tells Brendan to cut her throat. Okay. Mm -hmm. What this uncle is doing at that point? She's forever buying his silence. Yeah. He's making this young man involved in the homicide that he's going to be doing. So Brendan can't say anything from that point forward. He's Stephen savvy. He he's a he's a, a, a career. A criminal certainly has spent many, many years in prison, is is very, even though his IQ is not very high, uh, he is very uh, savvy in criminal things. He had become somewhat of a DNA expert in prison because of his case. He knew that burning a body was the way to get rid of DNA evidence. He knew that bleach was the one chemical that would mask DNA to the point where it couldn't be determined. So he and Brendan are pouring bleach all over his garage floor. And scrubbing the floor that very night. Well, why do you do that, Neil? Why do you why do you take bleach and or on the day that this woman shows up missing and likely is murdered? Uh, why are you picking that night to take all these uh, different cleaners and and especially bleach and, and pouring it all over the floor? Well, oh, just only one
0: reason. Just a casual routine think cleaning, right? Right. Right. Well, his whole
1: house. Was cleaned like that when the officers were, went into his house, uh, even before they had a search warrant. When they just talked to him and he invited them in the house. Yeah. The one thing they they said was it smelled freshly cleaned. You know, when you walk into a house, it felt it it smelled disinfected. It was peculiarly spotless, and the smell of cleaning products. Well. I don't think of that as coincidence. As somebody as not clean usually and not tidy as Stephen Avery, to have uh, chosen that week with a rug cleaner and shampooed all the carpets and had cleaned uh, up every spot of everything in uh, in the house, boy oh boy, that uh, that's something that I don't think just happens by accident. And I'm sure, quite sure, the jury took all of those things into consideration when they looked at the. Entire picture when they looked at all of the evidence, and they said, "Is it even possible that all of these other things could have lined up for somebody other than Stephen Avery to have to have done this, or uh, is it just what it looks like? It's a, a very sick man having lured this woman and done unmentionable things to her, and that's unfortunately, I think, I think what the evidence showed is what yeah. exactly happened."
0: Absolutely, I was wondering if we could briefly talk about Sherry Colhane because she. Took a sure. beating pretty bad and making a murderer too. She testif- yeah. she testified about how Teresa's DNA was found on that bullet in Avery's garage, but I think a lot of people let me, let, Yeah, go ahead.
1: Let me just let me just stop you just for your listeners. Sherry Colhane is the crime lab analyst yeah. who did the DNA testing on all of the items submitted in this case. You know, there were over hundred and thirty items submitted the most submissions ever made for DNA testing and Sherry Colhane did that testing and Sherry Colhane found the DNA on the bullet and other DNA tests of his blood in the SUV and the DNA that was on the hood latch and really all of the test results had come from this woman who was at that time the head of the DNA unit for the Wisconsin Crime Act. So go ahead and ask your question
0: now. I think a lot of people aren't aware that wasn't it Sherry Colhane who actually helped clear Stephen Avery for the case He was wrongly convicted for years before that.
1: Uh, That's right. In 2003, Sherry Culhane was the analyst, was the person who tested a hair from a different case and who had led to the exoneration of Stephen Avery. Sherry Culhane got DNA evidence to get Stephen Avery out of prison. And so it's that very same analyst that the defense later wants you to think is either incompetent or uh, purposefully cooking the book so that she and others could help convict Stephen Avery. Well, that's nonsense. Uh, she does the test and it comes out the way it comes out. And it's whether in 2003, when he is the, set to be exonerated, or in 2006, when she is asked, uh, 2005 and 2006, when she's asked to test the, the blood from this case, or way back in 1985, I guess. She was the serologist in the Wisconsin Crime Lab assigned to the Stephen Avery original rape case. So, when they just did ABO and that kind of testing of, of blood, when they didn't even have DNA, she was the serologist that worked on Stephen's first case. So, she has every Stephen Avery case from 1985 through his, his conviction. So, you've got
0: continuity in the
1: same analyst doing all of these testings, which is very, very unusual.
0: And her job isn't just to get results that win prosecutions. Of course.
1: And look, and what's, which is critical here, any of that evidence could have been tested, retested and has been. And all of her findings have been affirmed. Well, what does that tell you? You know, we we never hear of the scientific results that Kathleen Zellner says she was going to go off and have done. Why do you think that is, Neil? Why do you think we haven't heard about those thousands and thousands of dollars worth of special testing that she's done? It's because it verifies the one thing that we've known now for a number of years and that Stephen's guilty. And so for this attorney, this wrongful conviction champion, if you want to call her that, who had boasted that she was you know, 19 and 0 in her exoneration cases. And when Stephen Avery's case came to her, she only took cases that were from innocent people or whatever the nonsense she, she spins. For her to continue to suggest that there may be evidence out there that can lead to, to his exoneration, she has to know is false. She has to know that to be an untrue statement because she would have presented it by now. She would have presented something to the public by now that would have shown that this guy was not involved in it. You know, a number uh, two years ago, I was asked, and people like to speculate, if you were Kathleen Zellner, what would you do <laughs> on this case? I remember a reporter asking me that, and I said, well, if I was Kathleen Zellner, I'd get used to the number 19 and a 1, and that's something that she should still be teaching herself to do, because I've said it from day one, nothing, nothing, no kind of search in this case is going to establish, at least my prediction is that's Steven's anything other than responsible for this
0: murder. I don't know about Mrs. Zellner's past accomplishments, but I'll be honest with you, I don't pay a lot of attention to what she has to say on this case. It's just a lot of hot gas.
1: Well, I, I guess you're not the first person to have said that, you Neil. Know, I, of course, don't make comments like that. I just sit back and I let her continuously lose at the circuit court level, the court of appeals, and but now thankfully in the court of public opinion she is losing all of her credibility
0: what are you up to these days ken if you're not practicing law i just uh, what's your life like what are you doing
1: well, I'm pretty much retired. I live with my wife in the Appleton area. I moved back to, to the Appleton uh, area. I still consult on some cases. I still do some speaking. I mostly, though, am retired and uh, and enjoying that. But I think it's probably fair to say, Neil, that uh, I still hope that sometime uh, in the future that I'll be able to, to use uh, uh, what I've learned and what I've advocated for all these many years. That's for the practice of law criminal law and, and specific and hopefully I'll be able to uh, uh, to use my uh, my experience and my knowledge and my talents uh, to either um, help those that have in fact been wrongly charged or wrongly convicted or on the other side what I do with my life and what I do with my profession has always been to seek the truth and to seek justice and doesn't matter if it's the Avery case or any of the cases that I worked 25 years on. That hasn't changed, and it's not going to change
0: for me. I know you say you can never practice law again, but I I wouldn't never say never. The discussion on this case, as it changes in the coming years... I guess I would be surprised if you're not able to find a place that hires you.
1: Uh, we'll wait and see what happens. I'm 58 years old. I'm an old man,
0: and, oh, really? uh, <laughs> and
1: I and my wife has uh, has plenty of jobs. I go to the chicken coop today, so it, there's a lot of things like that that have to be attended to. But uh, but I'm pretty confident that somewhere down the road I'll I'll get back into the game in some sense.
0: So is there anything else about this case that you wanted to mention that we haven't talked about? You haven't spoken publicly a whole lot about this case, and. But I just want to give you an opportunity if there's anything else you want to cover that we haven't already.
1: I just want people to understand or people listening to this to understand just how pervasive the, the deception was in this docu-series. I mean, it, the intentional misrepresentation, leaving things out, but also making things up that didn't even happen. I, I can't stress this enough. Not only should these filmmakers be embarrassed about the product that they put out there. But through these numbers of years now that legitimate investigative types or media types have had a chance to look at this, why still in a real sense, nobody has taken them on. Nobody's willing to stand up and say, look, you lied. Those Emmys you got, you should give back because the documentary or or, or so you call it, it wasn't that at all. And it's something that, that industry should really, I think, look long and hard at. Eventually, like everything else truth is going to come out, eventually people will get vindicated in the sense of at least everybody will know what happened. But I fear it's too late. I fear it's too late for anything meaningful to come out of that. I, I know you can't give Andy Colburn back his reputation. I know you can't give me back mine or Jim Link, who sadly is ill and living in another state. You, know, you can't take those years that have really been stolen from all these people and under the name of entertainment. Well, it was entertainment. So what if we vilify some cops or whatever it makes for a good show? Well, the other side of that is these are very real people who have very, in a very real sense, had their lives destroyed.
0: Yeah, and, these are real people somebody, with families.
1: Somebody And somebody somebody should say something about that or hold these filmmakers and, those others that are responsible for
0: it accountable well it was nice talking to you Ken and uh, maybe we can do it All again right, sometime alright
1: Neil yeah I appreciate it very much I enjoyed the conversation very much and uh, and good
0: luck with your podcast Aaron. okay thanks a lot I appreciate it take Okay, care. take care bye. bye thanks to Ken Kratz once again check out his book on Amazon Avery The Case Against Stephen Avery and What Making a Murderer Gets Wrong and thanks to Kevin McLeod for the music of this podcast Kevin's website is Incompetech.com that's I-N C O M P E T E
1: C H. The best thing to do, 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 the best thing to